All right. Let us, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's do this. Matthew 16, 13 through 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? I love this question. How many people have heard this passage before? A few of you. Okay, it's, it's a good one. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's one of my favorite ones. So I'm going to break this down a little bit, and I'm going to nerd out a little. You're going to have to nerd out with me. You down? Yeah. All right, let's do it. So uh, I want to start like literally like 100,000 years ago. Okay, about 100,000 years ago when people started first uh, uh, um, thinking about agriculture, okay? And so what would happen is you would, you would become a farmer and you would farm and all of a sudden you would have a really good harvest. And because you had that really good harvest, you recognized that there was rain that came and good soil and the right kind of weather. And you wanted to give thanks for that somehow or in some way. And because we didn't have all the scientific knowledge back then, what we did is we said, oh, it's the gods that are doing this for us. And so you would go out and you would create like maybe a little altar made of stone, right? And you'd put, pile some stones up and you go out and you put some of that harvest on top of that altar. And you would say thank you to whatever it was that allowed this to happen, right? Um, and then the next year, really good harvest, you do the same thing again. I'm going to put some of my harvest out on this altar and say thank you. And then the next year, there was no rain. So you were like, oh my gosh, I don't have the same harvest, which means I must have upset whoever it is or whatever it is that I, I, I gave some of my harvest to the year before in this altar. Maybe I'm doing it the wrong way. And so what would happen is you would go and you would say, okay, I'm going to fix this altar up. I'm going to change it around. Maybe I'm going to leave a little bit more this time. And, and maybe this will get the gods or whatever it is uh, to give me a really good harvest. Right? I need to be certain because certainty at this time is a matter of life and death. Right? If you don't have a good harvest, you're not going to eat. That's a giant issue, right? And so, and so they're like, okay, I want to make sure I get this right. And so, uh, again, good harvest. They, they put their, their grains on the altar. And then, again, bad harvest. And now, like, what are we doing wrong? Maybe we should hire somebody who can, like, maybe live in a place where we make the altar and tell us what we need to do to be certain to get this right. And so they start hiring people, and they call them priests, right? And the priests have a little bit more of a connection to the gods or the goddesses or whatever it is. And the priests say, this is how you should sacrifice so that we can be certain that we're going to have a good harvest or, or maybe a good childbirth or maybe we win in battle. And we have, throughout the ages, starting about 100,000 years ago, have created a bit of religion around being certain. How can we be certain that things will go our way? And now this has continued to happen throughout history. In fact, we still do that. Now, it's not a matter of life or death in terms of like we're going to eat or not eat or we're going to win battle or not win battle. For us, like we've created these, these things around certainty um, that are still life and death in the way that we go to heaven or hell, right? Like I better read the Bible this way or otherwise I'm going to go to hell. If I do this thing, I'm going to go to hell. If I identify this way, I'm going to go to hell. But if I do this, I'm going to go to heaven, right? And so religion, for all the things um, that are good about it, I mean, we know it's a mixed bag, Right? I think one of the difficult things about religion is the fact that we have created religion to be a very certain thing. Right? We talk a ton about certainty. So when I was in sixth grade, I wanted to move to Cincinnati, Ohio. That's what I'm talking about. And uh, my cousins lived there. My parents had a job interview at this Christian college in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so they went to the interview, and we were getting ready to move there. And, and in the interview, they said to my parents, they said, are you, are you certain about the inerrancy of the Bible? Which means, like, are you certain the Bible is foolproof, right? Without error. And my parents both said, no. <laughs> no, we're not. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God, and it's full of truth. But I don't know if it's inerrant. And then my parents didn't get the job. 
And they didn't get the job because the trustees said something to the effect of, if you're not certain, then how do we know that you're not going to pass it on to our students and make them uncertain? And I was devastated that I didn't get to move to Cincinnati, Ohio, because my parents, my parents said that they didn't believe the Bible was inerrant. Just lie. That's what I said. And, um, but it's all right, because I ended up growing up here, and it's way better. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, a friend of mine is funny. He got ordained. He's preached here a couple of times, Josh Scott. And Josh talks about when he got ordained in the Southern Baptist Church. They handed him a book, and he said it was a thousand pages, and the book just said, What Baptists Believe. And so he, that's the book he got for his ordination. And he was like, Wow, the Baptists are certain about what they believe, a thousand pages worth. And he's like, I wonder what the other 39,999 denominations think that they're so certain about, right? What kind of books do they have? Because we love certainty. Certainty's a really big deal for us. And I think a lot of the times our lives are, are, are um, well, influenced or influenced by what it means to be certain. We need to be certain in order to move forward, right? You know what's really interesting about Jesus? I'm going to tell you some interesting things about Jesus. Do you know that Jesus was, um, uh, was asked 180 questions in the Gospels? Did you all know that? You're today years old when you found out? You know that Jesus asked 300 questions. You know that Jesus asked 300 questions? Out of the 180 questions that Jesus was asked, you know how many answers Jesus gave? And I mean clear-cut answers. You want to know how many clear-cut answers Jesus gave out of 180? Three. Jesus gave three clear-cut answers out of 180 questions he's asked in the Gospels. Usually, what Jesus does is answer a question with a question, hence the 300 questions, Right? Or he tells a story or does something ridiculous that makes everybody go, who is this guy, and leave. <laughs> and yet, what do we do with Jesus? We make Jesus our certainty. We make Jesus the answer. We, we make Jesus a transaction, a linchpin. The whole thing falls apart if we do not have Jesus. Now, I believe that on some level, right? But instead of looking at the life of Jesus and seeing Jesus' curiosity, we tell people that we have to be certain about the deity of Jesus in order to have a life or death situation go right in order to get to heaven, right? Seems a little contradictory to who Jesus actually was, right? Seems like Jesus was way more into curiosity than he was into certainty. Yeah? <laughs> All right. Everybody give themselves a little, little shake. A little shake, y'all. We're in this Becoming series, and I love this series. Because we have been saying, hey, we're a church called to bring in this next iteration of Christianity, right? And when we're called to bring in the next iteration of Christianity, there are good things that we can do. There are different things we can do that we believe are going to sustain Christianity uh, for hundreds of years, right? We, we've been talking about this. And in our Becoming series, we've been saying, what can we do personally? How do we personally mature? Who do we become in order to be the types of Christ followers who are going to bring in this next iteration of Christianity? And here's what I want to tell us today. I want to tell us that if we're going to bring in the next iteration of Christianity, what we need to do is we need to stop being certain. All right? Stop being certain. That is going to bring good news to people when we recognize that certainty is actually uh, stopping us from understanding the life of Christ and that it's curiosity that's going to usher in a new kind of Christianity. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to this passage. Right? And so when we go back to the passage, it starts off by saying that Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now here's a little thing with our Bibles. Every single time that the Bible writers write about where Jesus is, pay attention to that. It gives us really, really big clues. It's going to tell us something that we need to know. Um, for instance, if we were to make it in today's times, like, it would be a big difference if Jesus was in New York City compared to Orlando, right? 
Like, it'd be a really big difference. Same thing. Whenever we read about a place that Jesus is at, pay attention, because that place matters. So why does this place matter? It matters because, uh, oh, I'll tell you a few reasons. Uh, how many people know Herod? King Herod? We talked a lot about him during holiday season. Yeah, so he dies, and he dies, and his son Philip takes over. And his son Philip is a provincial king for the Roman Empire, and he's in this small outpost, and he's like, how am I going to get the attention of Caesar? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and name this city after Caesar and after myself. So it's called Caesarea, or Caesarea Philippi, which legitimately translates into Caesar Town Philipsville. Okay? <laughs> Dude is super creative. So Caesar Town Philipsville is where they're at. Now, here's the thing about Caesar Town Philipsville. It's a really dangerous place. Now, is it dangerous because of violence? Or is it dangerous because it's a hotbed for the Roman Empire? No. It's a dangerous place because if you were a good, God-fearing Jewish person, you weren't supposed to go there. It was considered an evil place. Why was it considered an evil place? It was an evil place because there was a cave in the middle of Caesarville, Philip's town. And this cave in the middle is where the Romans believed that all the gods and goddesses from the underground lived, right? And they would all come out of this cave. And so there were sacrifices made to the gods and goddesses at this cave. And uh, it was like a big center of religion there. And if you were a good God-fearing Jew, you said, don't go there. That's an evil spot. And, and you might be influenced by those gods and goddesses. And that's a real issue. And we can't have that happen. And yet that's exactly where Jesus is. I think we can identify. Anybody identify with being told that if we get too far out of our box that, that we're going to evil places? I tell this story. It's worth telling. Juby and I went to India, and we walked into a Hindu temple in India. This was 10 years ago. And, you know, we grew up in Christianity that told us that anything outside of Christianity is, is demonic, right? And so we walk into this Hindu temple, and both of us are like, oh, my gosh, should we be here? And then we look around, and, and there are homeless people being fed and clothed and cared for, and there are people like hugging, there are people worshiping, there are people crying, there are people laughing, children are running around, and, and, and people are coming up to us giving us hugs. And all of a sudden, Juby and I sort of remarked to one another, and we were like, how is this evil? How is it evil when we absolutely see God in this place? Like God in these people, God in the fact that people are being cared for and loved. Maybe, maybe God is not in a box. Maybe God can be other places that we've been told are evil, and it changed our perspective. Change the way we see God. That's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is in this place, this Caesarville, Philip's town, and all the disciples. We've got to remember the disciples are young Jewish men. They're like, Jesus, we are not supposed to be here. Why are we here? This place is evil. And Jesus goes, hey, if I'm God incarnate, I'm showing you that God is up to stuff in places that are comfortable for us and then places that feel super uncomfortable, in places that are familiar and then in places that are unfamiliar, places that are safe and then places that are called evil. I'm actually in all of it. Right? And so when we see Caesarville, Philip's town, take note that already Jesus is asking us to have some courage and to let go of certainty right there by that happening. Do we feel that? Amen. All right. So what comes next? So he says, who do, you who do people say I am? Really, he's asking them, who do you think I am? Well, the disciples answer. And they go, we think you're Jeremiah. We think you're John the Baptist. We think you're Elijah. Now this is a super safe thing to say. Super safe. To say that Jesus is one of those people means you're not really giving anything up at all. It means that you are safe within your tradition. It means that you are safe within the confines of your culture. It means you are safe within the confines of your religion. This is a safe thing to say. And so the disciples, they go, well, people say. But really, they're saying, well, we say you're this. Now, why is it safe? Well, they were prophets. The thing about prophets is they're truth tellers. And while they're alive and while they're on the earth, they get crushed, don't they? 
Greta Thornburg, I would say she's a prophet right now, enduring what no 16-year-old should ever have to endure for telling the truth. That's what happens with prophets. So Jeremiah was beaten. Jeremiah was arrested, thrown in jail. They call him the weeping prophet. Elijah had so many bad things happen to him that God was finally like, I'm just going to let you come up, man. Just, just come on up because you've gone through the ringer, right? John the Baptist was beheaded. And so when they say these things, when they say, well, some say you're this, they say, we think you're this. What we do is, is, is we sanitize the truth tellers. And we say that these people are good people within our context and culture. They now make sense. Who's the, who's the prophet that we, that we uh, celebrated last week? Martin Luther King. There's a great example. When he was alive, 70% of America did not like what he was up to. 70%, 7 out of 10 people. He, he, he was anti-capitalist. And he told, you know, liberals like myself, white liberals, he's like, you're not doing enough. You're not doing it right. Right? He did those things. The FBI had a file on him. And last Monday, the FBI said, maybe we all have the courage of Martin Luther King. Right? <laughs> FBI, you had a file on him. And it's funny how we sanitize, right? White people like myself, Martin Luther King's kind of a safe person. Right? Oh, I believe in what King stood for. Because when we say those things, it means we don't have to give anything up. It means we just celebrate with everybody else. Right? And that's exactly what the disciples are saying when they're saying, Jeremiah, you're Jeremiah, you're Elijah. They're saying, hey, this is in the confines of our comfy Jewish tradition. Like, to, to say you're one of these people means that, that we don't have to give up too much, that if things go the wrong way with you, Jesus, we can still go back, and, and people have heard that we said that, and yeah, that's okay, right? They're sanitized. And all of a sudden, Peter speaks up. And Peter goes, I think you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that is the most dangerous thing to say. That's incredibly dangerous to say. You know, we have now looked at this passage and we go, oh, Peter got it. Good for Peter, right? And you know what we've done? We've made like a whole theology around this. If we just say what Peter said, we're certain to go to heaven, right? We're certain. Man, all we got to do is proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We do it when we get baptized. Maybe we say the sinner's prayer. Who got baptized or said the sinner's prayer? Come on, where are you a few of you, yeah. We just say it, and we're certain that we have life. For Peter to say this was the most controversial, uncertain thing he could ever have done. Why? Because for thousands of years, they were waiting for a Messiah from a kingly lineage, someone who would be a king, someone who would be at least a general, someone who would, who, who would lead people into battle, someone who, who was adept at fighting, someone who was going to bring independence. That's who they were waiting for. And Peter walks around with somebody who does the complete opposite. Right? They're completely different. Jesus, Jesus is not this, this kingly person. He hangs out with the lowest of the low. And he's not this general. He's turning the other cheek. Right? He, he's a civilly disobedient. And, and, and you know the, the Messiah has all the answers. And Jesus is asking all the questions. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is basically losing your religion. That's what he's doing. He's saying, my Judaism, this thing that makes total and complete sense to me, this thing, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still in it because he never did become a Christian. He was always Jewish. So was Jesus, by the way. Jesus was Jewish. Don't forget. Anyway, with, with all that, right, like he's saying, I'm going to believe this guy's the Messiah, even though it goes against everything I've ever been told, every tradition I've ever gone through, every cultural thing I've ever practiced. By Peter saying this, he's going to go home for Thanksgiving and his family's going to say that he's a heretic. Like, that's going to happen. He's going to get into fights with his uncles. All those things are going to take place, right? Because Peter has the courage to say, I think you're the one, actually, even though it goes against everything that I've ever been certain about. And yet we've sanitized it. We made it like, oh, just believe like Peter believed. No. Peter said, you know what? If we are going to bring in this Christ-like living, if we are going to say that Christ 
is the one that we follow, I'm giving it all up. And that's what he does. He takes away his certainty, and he becomes a Christ follower. 2,000 years later, we all sit here for that same reason. Being, doing what Peter did, man, that's hard. That's really, really hard. Because you know what the opposite of certainty is? The opposite of certainty is not uh, you know, uncertainty, or the opposite of certainty is not curiosity. The opposite of certainty is fear. Right? For us to let go of certainty is a really scary place to be. We don't like to let go of that certainty. You know why we don't like to let go of that certainty? You know why we're fearful? Because we've been told way too often, over and over again, that we are not to trust self. That's what we've been told. Don't trust yourself. You are flesh. And what does the flesh do? The flesh is broken. The flesh wants these things, but God wants these things. And so when we hear, uh, you know, what we think is the Spirit speaking through us, and when we hear ourselves go, wow, I think God is up to something in my life, most of us are like, oh, that's not true. It's probably me just being selfish or manipulative or emotional or whatever the case may be. We don't believe it. We don't believe that, we, that, that God can use us or speak through us. In fact, when we say that's the case, we're fearful. We're afraid because it's not certain. How do I know? Right? How am I supposed to know? There's this great story. It's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a story um, about Joan of Arc when she's standing before the judge, right, after she leads people into battle. And the judge says, Joan of Arc, you know, you weren't hearing the voice of God. That was just your imagination. And Joan of Arc says, of course it was. How else am I supposed to hear the voice of God? Right? I hope that's a true story. <laughs> because it speaks to something. It speaks to the fact that, like, yeah, there are people who tell us it's just your imagination. It's just this way you feel. No. It's God at work in you. Don't be afraid of the fact that God might be at work in you the same way that God was at work in Peter when Peter decided to make the courageous decision to say otherwise. And so I think about the fact that, um, you know, we're an LGBTQIA-affirming church, and I think about that, and I think about almost five years ago we became that. And I remember sitting around with a group of around 10 people who were at our church at the time, and, uh, and everybody kind of said the same thing, and it was this. It was, hey, we see what the clobber passages say in Scripture. We get it. We get what the tradition in American Christianity is that says that this particular group of people is not welcome or not affirmed. But God is doing something in us. And it's possible that, that we probably need to listen to that and have courage to not be certain about it, and courage to step out, because actually it might be the most life-giving thing we could do. And it was the best decision we've ever made. Because what we decided was that God is doing something in all of humanity, not some of humanity. God is including all of humanity, not being exclusive of, of a few people. God is saying all of you have the Spirit. And where we find grace, where we find truth, where we find love, where we find inclusion, we find God. And that doesn't happen unless we have the courage to step out away from certainty and believe that God might be up to something bigger. Y'all, believe and have the courage that God is up to something in each and every one of us. And even though we're like, oh, that feels scary. No, the same reason Jesus is in Caesartown, Phillipsville, the same reason Peter says what he says is the same reason we're going to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity because we have the courage to believe that. Do you feel me? Do you believe that? Amen. Find the sacred in the common. 100,000 years ago, people would leave their homes and walk up to their little altars and place the grain on the altars, and then we decided we needed the priests, and we, we, we walked up to the priests, and they were the sacred ones, and we kept doing that over and over throughout, and even up until a few years ago, people were like, well, you can't go outside of a church. God's not there, right? Find the sacred and the common. We've been told we can, and we can. 
Find the sacred in your experiences. God is at work in them. Find sacred in the good things that we have been told are bad. Find the sacredness in sex. And find the sacredness in the things that we indulge in. And find the sacredness in like music and art and beauty. Because God is at work in those things too. Let's, let's be certain that, that, that God is, is not just at work in this place. That God's at work in all of it, right? And the reason to be certain about that is to go ahead and get uncertain. Right? Y'all are like, okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, Find the sacred in the common. I love the fact that Jesus takes them to Caesartown, Phillipsville. And by taking them there, he goes, hey, this place, this place is not called sacred. Well, I'm calling it sacred now because this is where you find out who I truly am. And there are places like Caesarville, Phillipstown, all over New York City that we've been told are not sacred. Make them sacred. They're beautiful. I know when I go mountain biking, it's the most sacred experience of my life. And people are like, you're new agey because you're worshiping nature. I'm like, no, I'm not. I believe that God is all over this place including this trail where I'm falling and dislocating my pinky. <laughs> Absolutely. Find the sacred in the common. Don't believe the lie that God is not at work in you. Find the sacred in the common. Know that you are on the narrow path. How many people are in the process of deconstructing some kind of faith or reconstructing your faith? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I hope our church is a safe place for you to do that. One of the hardest things that I had with this passage, and I'm going to tell you, um, this passage really threw me off, right? It says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. And I remember going through my deconstruction phase and going, I guess I'm going through this wide, this wide path now, this wide gate that leads to, de- to, to, to de- destruction, like, I guess I'm no longer a Christian. I don't know. I was going through something. And then I meditated on this a bunch, not just one day, but like for months on end. And I was like, you know what? I think it's way harder. It is way harder to see tradition, to see culture, to see the way that an entire tribe of people move and react, and then to have the courage to do something different. And I look at the life of Jesus Christ, and I see that Jesus Christ is up in a culture, in a tradition, in a group, in a tribe that is all doing one thing, and then Jesus Christ goes and does something completely different. And I'm convinced that's the narrow path. I'm convinced that us taking those steps and courage away from certainty is the narrow path that leads to life. And I'm convinced that every time we say, wow, God, I think you're up to something because I see beauty and I, I see grace and I see truth and I see inclusion. And I think I'm going to have the courage to step out and do this thing. I think that is the narrow path because the truth is there's not many of us who have courage to do it. And here's the thing. I believe in this church and I believe in our calling and I believe that the spirit is moving right now in each of us to walk that narrow path and to walk it in such a way where we can be curious instead of certain, and to walk it in such a way where we are scared to death, but we take a step forward, and to walk it in such a way where we say, God, I know I'm a human being who's a sinner, and I know that I'm fleshly, but I also believe you are working through me because you are God, and you're the infinite and unimaginable. I'm not going to box you in by thinking otherwise, right? And if we can do that, then that is the narrow path. Y'all, we are going to usher in a new kind of Christianity we have the courage to stop being certain. What's Jesus up to in your life? What's going on? What are you feeling? What's that ping or that pang or whatever it is right here that says, you know, I got to go and do this thing. You know, we are the smartest, most creative, most talented people in America. And I just say that because I'm biased 
because I, I love y'all. And, and, uh, and, but we are. We're in New York City. We do amazing things. And I talk to all of you, and you're like, I do this amazing thing. And then we walk through the doors of a church, and we throw it all aside because we're afraid. Even though we're the most creative, strategic, amazing people, we come in here and we go, I'm afraid to do that. Even though we'll step out of this door and we'll do it no matter what, we'll do it for our jobs and everything else. Let's be consistent. Don't be afraid to do that here as well because when we do it, it's going to change the world for the cause of Christ. So do this for me. Right now, if everybody can, will you please close your eyes? And I just want to end with these words. And I pray that there are words that we take with us. That we practice the rest of this week. If something is coming towards you with grace and can pass through you and towards others with grace, then I pray that we all trust it as the voice of God. Listen to what is supporting us. Listen to what is encouraging us. Listen to what is urging us. Listen to what is alive in us because that is the answering of our curiosity. That is the losing of our religion. And that is finally finding the voice of God. Do that. Amen.